So we're not walking in and just saying, hey, we are, we are adding expenses by bringing more people here. What we're doing is we're avoiding you going to a more heavy cost center down the road with probably some in-between medical expenses and progression of disease. And again, if you look at time of productivity, if you look at logistics, I mean, there's so many factors and data points that we're collecting and, and it's really trying to organize to really be able to tell this story. We are significantly reducing costs for the healthcare systems, optimizing for productivity of let's call it the family and, and, and obviously taking away pain. And then we're saving money to insurance companies. So this is one of those scenarios where you walk in and where everyone wins at the table. Yes. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, a returning guest, Dr. Naveen Goyal. He joined us back in episode 81 to talk about some exciting work that he's been doing in uh, bringing pediatric dental anesthesia to underserved populations, among many other things. I'm really excited to follow up with him today to hear more about uh, his adventures. So Dr. Goyal, thanks for being here. Justin, thanks for having me back. I'm excited for this discussion. So just to give a brief recap, maybe... You can mention for our listeners who, and by the way, anybody who wants apmsuccess.com slash 81, you can hear the precursor to this discussion today, but I want to just continue to look at your story and the really interesting journey you've had, you know, clinical anesthesia for a long time and then pivoting into, I want to say the business world, but I mean, you're running a dental anesthesia company among other things. So to just allow listeners to enjoy that journey together with us, maybe talk a little bit about your background and then what's been happening lately. Yeah. So, you know, an anesthesiologist by training and practice in private practice for about 13 years. I was also a medical director of one of our hospitals for several years and eventually got the entrepreneurial bug and co-founded a company called SmileMD, which is a mobile anesthesia company uh, that services uh, many pediatric dentists in their offices and then continued the entrepreneurial journey to help fund the entrepreneurs uh, that I had met and were uh, was learning from and started a fund, which kind of further along became more of a firm, So, uh, which is called Loud Capital. So I run Loud Capital full-time now. I'm on the board and very involved in SmileMD, now known as Offer Health, and I no longer practice clinically. So that's kind of a high-level description of, of, of what's up. So when we spoke about a year ago, SmileMD was somewhere, but as, as I recall, between 16 and 18 employees and you were beginning to get significant traction. So tell us a little bit about, first of all, like where did the idea come from to, to provide the services that you described? And then what has the last 12 months looked like? Yeah, so the idea came from a few dentists who wanted to have anesthesia services uh, in their office. And there were high-end uh, settings where they would get cash pain patients and you know wanted to basically provide a, a great experience. And of course, during a long procedure, even if you're paying a lot of money for a great mouthful of dental work, the experience is also important. And so if there was sedation, anesthesia involved, that would be, you know, the, the best. So after exploring it with a couple of my colleagues, we, we realized that there is an opportunity 
there wasn't really a direct line between the anesthesia world of let's call it the medical side and the hospital side and these offices and, and, you know, specifically dental practices. And so it, you know, we can ignore it and we can kind of keep that separate, or we can say, look, there are people that want it and we knew there were cases that needed it. So how can we figure that out? And so that's what we kind of delved into and, and started learning and figuring things out. And the opportunity became something that we took action on. Um, it was not easy and still isn't easy, but I believe uh, true problem solving is never easy. It's just a necessary thing that people take. And, you know, so last year we had about 17, 18 people. Uh, I think when we last did our episode, since then we've uh, raised a series A and we recently raised uh, more capital. We've entered uh, four states total now. I believe we're in one or just entering our second last time we spoke. And as of today, we have about 110, 112 employees uh, with a really great leadership exec team um, that are actually moving from around the country here to Columbus, where our headquarters is. And we are going to be entering our fifth state uh, in the next month. So that is incredibly exciting. Congratulations on that really awesome growth. Uh, there's a lot that I want to understand about this, but maybe before we dive into the nuts and bolts of what Offer has done in the last 12 months, describe, especially for people who haven't heard the first episode, the sort of the the constraints that create significant backlog and significant waiting times for people who do dental work. And yeah. how does your company work to address those constraints? Yeah, of course. So the the problem that we are solving today, a lot of problems, but the, the, the bread and butter currently is the dental world and pediatrics. And so if you're a five-year-old kid, let's say, and you're in an underserved population, you're on Medicaid, you are very low on the totem pole in the healthcare system. So number one, dental is always low on the totem pole in the medical world. So you go to an operating room and you say dental, it's just going to be knocked down. It doesn't pay well. It's just not high priority because it's not truly medical. It's just this big line and divide between dental and medical. And then you go Medicaid, right? Underserved populations in general, you're lower on the totem pole because the reimbursements are lower. And so their prioritization is lower as well. Those are just the facts. There's, it's not, it's not right, but it's the facts. And so right now in the state of Ohio, there's about a nine to 12 month wait. If you're that child who needs, you know, anesthesia to get this taken care of. And essentially, right. If we're an adult right now, me and you, Justin, and we, we go into a dental practice and we need to get something extracted. Some of us can get some either sedation, laughing gas, little local anesthetic and, and get it taken care of. If you're a child, you won't sit still and, and, you know, Basically, we need anesthesia services to undergo this procedure. And the reason that they go to a surgery center, medical center, hospital, basically an operating room is to get anesthesia, not because they need a sterile operating room. So what if you could bring those services to the office, do it in a safe manner and do it in a very structured manner, which has taken years to build and enable that. And that's what we do. So in Ohio, nine to 12 month wait for, us, for us, an operating room. We go to the office that's in their community, that's where it's diagnosed, probably from the dentist there, and we get it done within a month. And what we do in, let's say, the state of Illinois, which we're also at, in Chicago, it's a 22 to 24 month wait. And this is the US of A, 2022. You're a five-year-old child on Medicaid living in Chicago, and you have dental work, and you need to go to uh, see, you know, uh, 
an operating room to, to undergo anesthesia, that's how long you wait. And once again, we can do that within a month in Chicago. And so we are solving a very specific and true problem. The problem with that problem is that's just one of many. So we're starting with something that's so obvious and affects a, a child's life when it comes to pain, concentration, malnutrition, you know, and, and that's what we're solving today. Yeah, I know you are a father. I, too, yeah. have a two-year-old, and I can only imagine, you know, as a parent, you want to do everything possible to try to allow for your child's well-being and how uh, disempowering and depressing it must be to say, to have someone tell you, get at the back of the line, we'll help your kid in two years with a... a what is presumably a really urgent, like every day, every meal, it's impacting your life kind of need. Yeah, and, and that then straight up here, look, I'm a father, I'm, I'm 45 years old, I have two girls, I love my girls. And if something happens, I want medical care. I have private insurance, and I know that actually will be taken care of quickly. Yeah. Now the father of other kids who happen to be on Medicaid also loves their kids, mm-hmm. also is, <laughs> wants to get that done soon. And yet the wait is crazy. So like, it, it, I'm definitely more empathetic being a father. And as I'm getting older, it's becoming crystal clear how ridiculous that is. And and so it's all about how can we, you know, not, not gonna just complain here and say, there's, um, you know, uh, life is unfair because it is, but I'm really focused on the problem solving. So what can we do to make this happen. We're not going to wait on large medical systems. We're not going to wait on prioritization of operating rooms. No, 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 no. We just need to figure out in an entrepreneurial way how to get this taken care of. And that's what we've been doing. Yeah. So I can't imagine, I'm actually looking at beginning to bring on employees in my awesome. financial planning company, which is great. And going from zero to more than zero is uh, yeah, a big deal. It's a big shift. So I can only imagine going from 17 to 100 plus is, well, frankly, it might be easier to do that than it is to, you know, go from zero to five. But well, how about I'm, different challenges? Different challenges. Easier. Yeah, sure. Easier so is I'm not curious to know from like, a, from a leadership and management and, you know, basically like getting a seat on that rocket ship. How have you, what have you learned? How have you developed as a leader and what challenges have you faced? What I've learned is there's a lot of great personalities that come in that have a lot to contribute. Sometimes it's just not the, the piece of the puzzle that you need at that time. Or sometimes there's different reasons why people join. There's, there's a talent and skill and a motivation, but not necessarily an alignment for what the North Star is of the company. And the North Star of the company is to provide access to care. And we use logistics, we use clinical, and we use technology. Those are the three pillars that we use to bring that together to fulfill our North Star. And sometimes you have really talented people who can do it, but essentially because times are going to get tough, not can, but will, is there an alignment there? And, and we've had normal, you know, a little bit of friction, amazing recruits come and, and still coming and, and joining. And it's just something I, I've learned personally to really evaluate um, how important alignment and culture and leadership is. So as you've grown, obviously you're, t- tell me about the, the way that you've experienced growth in the last 12 months. There's, there's more and more dentists, presumably that are interested in your services. Is there, you mentioned kind of state by state. So is there uh, like a regulatory sort of restriction or something like that required these hurdles that you need to clear in terms of 
state health department or something like that to be able to render your services in a given area? Absolutely. So uh, for the entrepreneurs out there, if, if you don't already know, on healthcare in the U.S. is is a, is a tough tough one to, to pull off here. You know, when you're taking care of a patient, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done to be able to take care of that patient. And here's the not great thing is we have 50 states and each state is different. Each state requires different licensing regulations. This, you can do that. So we actually have spent a lot of money figuring out each state and regulatory and we're, we're going about it the right way, but it is no small feat. And so we've, we've slowly been figuring each state out. And, and that's why, you know, that's why you need to have a big team. That's why you need to have capital. This is not something that, you know, uh, a few anesthesiologists and a, and a few supplies can, can walk over and, and scale this. It really takes a diverse group of folks and talent and experiences with capital and then a huge vision of what you want to do. And, you know, again, that's what we're on year eight right now. So, so tell me about the different roles that you've sort of grown into as your organization has scaled and what, like, who are you currently trying to find? I'm sure there's some clinical people and some like everybody else in the, the ecosystem you're creating. Yeah. So we employ people who schedule our patients, do pre-ops. We employ physicians who do the anesthesia. We actually recently employed a physician for a medical director. We employ paramedics and nurses for, for the clinical aspect because we have a whole care team when we go see patients and then everything in between. And so, you know, we, we just work with a lot of entities from, you know, board of pharmacy and I mean, you name it. And so it really just takes a lot of different skill sets and talent to, to get this going. Do the physicians that work with you are they full-time or are they doing this on a fractional basis generally? We actually have both. We have some fully employed anesthesiologists. We have some that are um, more of a hybrid. They have some, some other jobs and give us availability. And one thing that's really interesting the last year is we've seen a lot more applicants. We've seen a lot more pool of talent just apply because before this was, it still is non-traditional. Um, but there was also some skepticism. Hey, you know, I, I know what something that has to do outside of the operating rooms usually is less safe. It's usually you're on an island. You don't have as much help. You have less policies, less structure. And so that's something we've been working on since day one is how do you mimic walking into an operating room and knowing that your supplies, your equipment, your staff are all there to help you and not go against you which many times is, is what offsite means. Yeah, I have no sense for how common dental anesthesia is, but I can tell you that every time I've seen it in a headline, it was when some routine thing went poorly and in some cases somebody died and yeah. regulators or other people are asking questions about what was going on here. And so I do have this sense of there's a broad, I mean, I don't know, I, I wanna hear your perspective on this, but like there's the very responsible, very safe, sort of model on one hand and on the other, perhaps it's the wild west. Yeah. And that's just because I think the, the wild west, which let's call it the non-operating room space, mm -hmm. right? So many times it's offices or offsite. It's just looked upon as a, Hey, if we can't do it in the OR, that's a potential area versus 
hey, let's optimize the offsite office area to try to enable as much care, healthy patients that can be there so we don't have to bring them to the operating room, which is very highly priced, which is backlogged, which requires more people to staff, more specialists, and it should be used for certain things, right? If you have an orthopedic surgery, you're doing a total knee, you need a sterile operating room, you need a lot of more things. If you're extracting teeth, whether it's from kids or adults, that doesn't need to be there. There are other options and we don't, we don't enable the other spaces enough. So it's really just focusing that on that and, and ensuring that our, the providers are comfortable and they're safe, which ensures the patients are safe. So it doesn't surprise me that you see these nightmare headlines, which you probably don't even see. Many of us don't see a, a really what goes on out there, but we have been really, there's a lot more uh, of these cases that have been put on our plate mm-hmm. and it's almost like we can't grow and fast enough or other people grow fast enough to enable the care safely. Yeah. One of the ones that I'm thinking of, I think it was a, a kid in California, like a five-year-old who had something go, and this is like a few years ago now, and it, it went wrong. There was sedation involved. The kid died. It was very tragic. And and now st- that left such a mark on the public psyche that now these yep. handful of years later, there's still like the so-and-so bill. It's like named after the kid that's before yep. state legislation that they're looking to set these minimum thresholds. And so it's not, I mean, again, California is a big state, presumably there's a lot of dental procedures. So I don't know how, how big of a percentage that represents, but it's so, when it goes bad, it's so just, it's damaging to the the dentistry profession, I got to imagine. And it makes consumers, like if I was taking my kid to the dentist, I mean, I don't really have a sense of a lot of the questions to ask, but now that I know that some of the things to think about in terms of dental anesthesia, I'm very I'm very interested to understand how that would function in a given. I believe that was Caleb's law. Yeah, that sounds right. I believe. And so what's interesting is back in the day, you know, anesthesiology was not a separate field, right? The surgeon would actually put the patient to sleep and then operate. And then sometimes they would realize the patient wouldn't wake up or something had happened. And so it just was determined that there should be someone watching the patient at all times. In the office space, let's call it the the non-structured space, you have providers who are doing the procedure as well as sedating and and obviously not able to watch the patients. And so that's what's been happening, which boggles my mind because the the reason this field was created was exactly what I said, was you have someone watching the patient at all times. And so is it practical to always have an anesthesiologist with every patient who gets sedated. I'm not saying that, but there needs to be a qualified person who at least is paying attention. And there's a whole spectrum of, you know, without going too deep, but it's, but it's interesting. How do you enable the care because people do need care out there and there's not enough people to stand as an anesthesiologist and watch every patient. I don't have the immediate solution, but again, I think what we're trying to work on is, is more structured and safe way to get care in the offices. And, and, and there's a lot of other folks required. Like we use, we use paramedics now in a very different way than just, you know, paramedics working in, in you know, in an ambulance and, and going to various calls because there's, there's skill sets that are underutilized. And we're finding that out with nursing. We're finding that out with other physicians. So it's really like, how can you match unmet demand with unmet skill sets? Just by doing that, you can really optimize a lot more care. 
So talk about how you describe the care team model that you're using to a dentist who's like, I heard about what you guys are doing. I'm casually interested and I want to learn more. Yeah. So what we normally come in with is an anesthesiologist, a paramedic, and a nurse. We have a lot of help from, from them with, with regards to setup, with regards to having a hand placed in the IV, et cetera. We have, once we're done with one case and we're, we go to the other, we have a nurse that's recovering the patient just like we would uh, in, a, in a medical center. And so again, it's just, you know, this company being founded by three anesthesiologists, we said, how do we continue the care in a practical manner? Of course, if we could have every single piece of everything, we would try to do that. But that's not, not only economical, it's just not practical in a small office setting. So how do we make this work with the standards of anesthesiology, which has been the, the healthy middle of figuring things out. But I can tell you right now, what we're doing today is probably the safest that has, you know, the safest structure and system that we've seen. It doesn't mean we don't have room to improve, but uh, we're proud of what we've built. And, and we get a lot of input from the various anesthesiologists in different markets who say, hey, I did this. Uh, I, I really feel like we should do this. We have a whole peer review committee. Uh, we have a governing board. And we, we try to, again, mimic uh, some of the, the, the healthy processes that we did in the hospitals. So as you're describing, you know, I'm sure every dentist would love to say or would love to loves the idea of like three people watching their patient while they're doing it, uh, you know, dental work. But this is making me think, you know, what is the cost of having these three people do that? So if there's challenges with reimbursement, you know, Medicaid patients, whatever, can you describe a little bit about the economic model and, and how this sort of is sustainable for a dentist? Yeah. So let's just take that. Uh, five-year-old kid and uh, they have a 24-month wait in Chicago. What many times will happen is uh, the kid's going to have pain, um, have some other issues with nutrition, go to the ER, have more doctor visits. Uh, the, the, in the meantime, they're still waiting for the operating room to get this done. And so if you think about the incurred time and medical expenses from the other visits uh, and the, you know, the progression of disease, et cetera, that is a huge cost. And guess what? Then 24 months later, they end up going to the operating room, they get it done. How much did that cost for that operating room with that staff, facility fees, et cetera? So now you take that whole 24 month journey, mm -hmm. take those expenses and you reduce it significantly for the care that we provide, let's say within a month, then you look at it in a very different perspective, right? So we're not walking in and just saying, hey, we are, we are adding expenses by bringing more people here. What we're doing is we're avoiding you going to a more heavy cost center down the road with probably some in-between medical expenses and progression of disease. And again, if you look at time of productivity, if you look at logistics, I mean, there's so many factors and data points that we're collecting and, and it's really trying to organize to really be able to tell this story we are significantly reducing costs for the healthcare systems, optimizing for productivity of, let's call it the family and, and, and obviously taking away pain. And then we're saving money to insurance companies. So this is one of those scenarios where you walk in and where everyone wins at the table, yes. So I know one of the challenges, especially with Medicaid, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, is you know reimbursement rates. Anesthesia is like famously bad for how much you get from Medicare versus the usual and customary rates. So in terms of, you know, somebody on Medicaid, can you just explain how that, 
how the billing works, I guess, or if, if Medicaid is still paying for the patient's care for the anesthesia services, are, is the anesthesiologist and the, the rest of the care team being, you know, compensated in a way that is, that, that covers their costs? Every, everyone's, yeah, it's a great question. Everyone's being compensated at least uh, as competitive as the hospitals. And, and here's what's interesting when you talk about an anesthesiologist working on, a, let's say, a, a patient on Medicaid in the hospital. Let's see. Let's say they they see their reimbursement and it's not great. But do you think that Medicaid paid the whole hospital system, including the anesthesiologist? Do you think it's a really really small chunk change that that the anesthesiologist saw, or is there more to it? And and that's what I've learned. There there's actually a bigger check that's written uh, to the hospitals, and I'm not saying it's still the amount of a private insurer, but there is more money that goes to the hospital and to cover the expenses. I mean, you know, there's, there's other benefits. There's, you know, no hospital system would take Medicaid uh, just cause they have to, they'll make sure there's, there's something that covers them. Yeah. And so all I'm saying is you take that money and you can still reduce the amount that the insurance company pays and still make a for-profit business work with everyone being paid adequately. And that's what we've done. We've just kind of taken out the high cost of care for simpler procedures on healthy patients and we're enabling the care elsewhere, still saving money. So when you, when you compare it comprehensively, which many physicians, many individuals just don't know because they haven't been introduced to it. Uh, for me, you know, leaving the healthcare system two years ago and, and seeing what I see talking to people that I meet, it's interesting that the, the larger picture. Absolutely. I mean, you just described sort of the classic problem. One of the classic problems in healthcare is that prevention is just so much cheaper <laughs> uh, yeah. or, or handling things timely is so much cheaper than letting it get as bad as it needs to get for you to then demand the OR because it's like a very acute, serious issue. Exactly. Exactly. Tell me about the anesthesiologists who are now working for you and where are they coming from, especially in the last couple of years, you know, last 12 months obviously has been a weird time to be an anesthesiologist. One of the things that we talk about again on the show is the macro demand. Anesthesia is just desperately needed all over the place, but the micro instability between yeah. one group, one contract, one site of service, there's, there's a lot, you know, anesthesiologists strangely are still losing their jobs in certain places based on politics, based on contracts. So yeah. who have you found that's interested in coming to work for your company? Where are they coming from? It's interesting. We're actually seeing a, a spectrum of folks. So young folks just coming out of residency who, again, before we're looking to just join a hospital system or a large practice, we no longer are seeing that. We're seeing some young folks apply directly from residency. We're seeing uh, pediatric anesthesiologists from excellent children's hospitals, again, range in experience. We're also seeing folks who were about to retire or towards the retiring years who said, wow, I can only do a few shifts if I, if I want to. And, 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 you know, just to go to the foundation of how we talk to people, you know, we have a lot of flexible hours. We don't have any call or nights and we see healthy patients, you know, ASA one and two in offices, cause we're not here to push any boundaries. It's just, again, taking care of people who don't need to go to the medical centers. So we've been able to recruit pretty well, especially the last year. Again, I think growing to the size we have, we have people fly in to shadow and we're open for feedback, positive or negative, but 
Uh, it's really great to hear from different training programs and different experiences that fly in and say, wow, this operation is is pretty impressive or, hey, this this is great, but this is what I suggest. So for us, we're just a sponge. We're trying to learn, but I believe we've you know provided a great experience so far. Yeah, and I think the growth you've seen kind of speaks for itself as to the demand for what you're providing and the way that you're quickly iterating to meet that demand. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, it, it's it's good. It, it feels good to be here, but uh, I'll tell you the first couple of years, it was uh, calling every anesthesiologist we knew to, to fill in spots uh, because there was skepticism or because we didn't have enough demand at, the, at that time. And so it's just trying to match it. Now we have more demand than then we can match uh, and that's a good problem to have. But if you know any anesthesiologists are, are listening to this, we'd love for you to apply. Tell me about the day in the, a day in the life of a dental anesthesiologist. Cause you, you mentioned the schedule and it's obviously like, it sounds like a little bit more of like a, you know, nine to four. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, sometimes it, so every practice is different, but uh, our anesthesiologists know the the schedule, like the day before, how many patients, et cetera. Uh, sometimes it's walking in at it's 7 a.m things are set up, you see your first patient and sometimes there's four or five patients, sometimes there's more, sometimes there's a little less. So it's varied, but you know, there won't be, there won't be nights, there won't be weekends. And sometimes the practice is really close to you. Sometimes it's a little bit farther. It just depends. And we're, you know, we're building technology right now to optimize the experience of the provider. So you're an anesthesiologist and you have experience in this and you prefer this and we're, we're putting that in and calculating the best schedule for you. Cool. So, you know, you had 13 years being a clinician as an attending plus training, and then you kind of pivoted out and now you're, you know, running offer. And can you talk a little bit about some of the other loud capital you mentioned as well? Talk about the other broader, you know, the broader vision that you have for the work that you do. Yeah, of course. And, and yeah, to clarify, so I have a full exec team for offer health, including a CEO who runs it full time. Great. So I'm uh, on the governing board, peer review, uh, and very heavily involved as a co-founder. But formally, we have a whole leadership team that runs it daily, doing an excellent job. I run Loud Capital full-time as CEO. When I left at the end of 2019, it was to run Loud Capital because we we did already have a team for Offer Health. And so for for me, my, my daily job is to, or I should say my daily purpose, is to, number one, educate new people about what impact investing is, what social impact means and what social entrepreneurship is. And so it's like, how can you build, just like we're talking about with Offer Health, for-profit models, which for-profit, of course, for-profit, but sustainable. When you build a smart business model, that means it's it can last. And so that's, that's why I, I really am about the for-profit social impact model. And so I educate new investors who want to invest in this space because we could use more money and resources that go towards great people and purposes. Uh, we talk about returns on various alternative investments. And then on the, on the entrepreneurial side, we build and invest in, in great companies. And so we actually build companies in-house. One of them is called uh, Beyond Physician that's being launched in a couple of weeks, uh, which is a platform for physicians to learn, earn, and grow is the tagline. And so how do you optimize yourself uh, and learn different skills to be able to earn income from various sources outside of clinical? And so the, the larger vision of that is how can physicians, medical students and residents enable themselves with the skill sets to earn in different ways? 
And right now there's not an aggregated platform or an aggregated way to learn and do side gigs all on one highly you know, user-friendly technology platform. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, about Beyond Physician? Yeah. Yeah, so Beyond Physician, just imagine, especially it's, it's probably mo- more important now than it ever has been. So uh, imagine a couple of years ago that you know, the world shuts down and uh, you have some entrepreneurs earning income, let's say you have marketing skill sets and you go to uh, Fiverr or, or you go to an online job marketplace and you're able to give your skill sets to clients. Well, there was a lot of physicians that were stuck at home and they're, they get paid for their clinical expertise. And so if you can't practice clinically, there's not a lot of ways to use your skill sets up here, your intellect, your experience and other things you can do. Uh, it's really hard to earn income. And so that personally hit me in the heart because I was like, that, you know, that, that's crazy because there was a lot of physicians that were talking to me like, Naveen, I wish I, I went into business like you did. And, you know, I was undergoing my own obstacles, of course, but it, it made me think like, that's crazy. You're a highly specialized, pretty much badass over here. And you should be able to use your skill sets to earn income. And it's not just earning income, it's earning income and expanding your mindset, right? Like human nature is if we can earn income in different streams, it's it's more fulfilling versus just one. It's just like, you know, filling different buckets. And so that's how I feel this platform can be for our physician community. Uh, and we are including medical students and residents because uh, we're all in, a, in, a, in the same community. How can you empower our community to do different things? And we can talk about leadership courses we can talk about coaching we can all these individual things which are great by the way but something larger and more comprehensive and so that's what this platform is and so it'll be uh, i'm not sure when this is going to be this episode is going to go out but end of april will be live and there'll be med students physicians and residents who can log on you know for free and see any gigs any anything they can learn and earn but then on the outside justin this is where yourself and I think a lot of other folks, whoever needs a student, a resident, a physician, whether you're a law firm, whether you're a company who just wants some direction from a physician, they can come to this platform. And so it's it's really just utilizing a great, highly specialized skill set of people who don't currently have a home. Awesome. So for anybody listening, apmsuccess.com slash 143, we're going to provide links to all the things we've discussed today, including this platform, which this probably will be going live maybe right around the end of April. So perfect timing if anybody's listening wants to go check it out. This is a cause near and dear to my heart. I always encourage people, it starts before you even sign the contract. You need to make sure that if you're signing an employment agreement, your employment agreement allows you to maintain your own intellectual property and allows you to do things on your own time, even if they are clinical in ways that don't directly compete with your employer to be able to do precisely what you just described. There's gonna be a lot of people listening right now that are at you know, big academic center, ABC, who signed their life away when they signed their employment agreement and says, you basically can't do anything unless you're doing clinical anesthesia for us. So this is a good opportunity for anybody out there, like check out what you've signed, (laughs) see what kind of flexibility that you have. And for anybody who's looking at job offers, this is an important point of negotiation to say like, listen, if I'm doing something on a Saturday morning on my own time, I should be able to segment that and earn money that doesn't, you know, have anything to do with my employer. If you, if you, provide that service. So you know, of people that provide that service, they will be needed and wanted on the platform. So imagine again, you're a resident and you just got your first job. 
you can come to this platform and say, hey, I want someone to review this for me. Uh, again, specifically to, to find that. Cause I know when I got mine reviewed, I called a bazillion people and said, oh yeah, I know an attorney who knows this. So instead of doing that, you can just log on and, and do that for yourself. And that's, that's literally the whole point of this platform is to guess, empower the physician community with skill sets and opportunities to, to grow. Tell me about the way that you sort of have seen medicine evolve in the last couple of years. I know that, you know, you got out basically right before COVID happened, but you've still been closely involved in the medical ecosystem. You also have, as you mentioned, two uh, daughters, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that they probably look at what dad's doing and want to emulate your example in some way. So tell me about the way that you see medicine evolving and the way that you perhaps would counsel your kids if they're thinking about a career in that direction, things to think about. Sure. I, I still believe the, the core and field of medicine is, is awesome, but I think more and more as time is moving forward and the world is changing, the structure of clinical medicine is the exact same. And so to me, it hasn't been as much the structure and culture have changed actually at all. It's everyone else is changing, including the world, and it's not caught up. And so what I tell folks is, you know, I left clinical medicine and, and people call me, reach out all the time from literally around different countries as well, because everyone's, you know, human condition, right? They say, gosh, should I do clinical medicine? And I don't have, you know, I'm not trying to encourage people to leave. But what I do tell people is that my expectation of clinical medicine, I never even thought about other things because I thought that was it that was going to fill my bucket. But we all change, we all want to problem solve. So if you're in a, you're doing the same job, and you're feeling like you're not learning something new or doing something new or using different parts of your brain, that's not going to be good for you. And so right now, clinical medicine is very just one pathway. So my, my dream for our field of medicine, and whether my daughters go into it or not, is just ensure that the clinical is there, but that's going to be one of many buckets that you need to fill to be to feel complete and comprehensive. No one ever told me that and people don't talk about it enough. That's what I tell medical students, residents, physicians, pre whoever wants to go in. Um, and, and actually this applies to any profession. This is just be armed to continue wanting to problem solve, be armed to continue to want to fill other buckets. We call it, oh, you're bored with your job or you weren't happy. No, that's not it. This is actually part of the package that no one told us about. So as long as the future physicians are practicing clinically, but also doing some other things to not only be more well-rounded and smarter about, about everything they do, but about also just being fulfilled. So we're not leaving in troves like we're, we're doing today. Yeah, that's a big part of the mission of this show is to try to, as much as possible, equip physicians to go as far and as well as they can, knowing that the pressures and stresses are immense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you hit on a great point, and this is something that I've listened to others. I love podcasts because it's like having a conversation with people 10 times as smart as you, and you can have those conversations as often as you want when you're working out and things. And um, I think it was Seth Godin, who's a business and marketing maven, who was talking about creative problem solving and the way to like equip your kid to compete and succeed in a global economy. It was a very sort of, you know, esoteric discussion, but creative problem solving is basically the last thing that AI can take from us. <laughs> 
And obviously there's different ways to define that, but if you can think outside the box, identify problems, and then think about the 172 different ways you could potentially solve it, and then identify the six best ways that are realistic solutions, and then vet those one by one until you find the one way. Like, as long as you're training your brain and and helping a, your fellow humans to think in that way, that's always going to allow you to be relevant vocationally and uh, equip you to make the world a better place. And I think what you just described is precisely that for doctors and taking these incredible, you know, clinical experience plus academic background that they have amassed over decades, which is really like can't be replicated in any way other than just the brute force of going through the process yeah. and then giving an extra opportunity to leverage this not only in the clinical realm, but to creatively solve problems that frankly, like doctors are the only ones who have the body of experience that's required to solve certain problems, certain very complicated, very big problems. Yeah. And so that's why as you're describing this platform, I'm, I'm excited to see the ways in which physicians hopefully will be like, unleashed to use that cumulative experience to, to do new and exciting things. Yeah, no, we're, we're very excited. And you know, I recently wrote a book on, on, you know, it's called physician underdog on the whole journey of my my story of wanting to be a physician and kind of the mindset shift going into entrepreneurship going into venture capital and what i see is the future physicians and what they can do um and and that stems from the job i left the private practice i left is still the same there's not much that has been changed still a great private practice job but i changed a lot that's that's the thing though there's that's inevitable. People change. And I think the pandemic accelerated change, but everything else has been kind of the same. And that's the problem. So it's really just how can you empower yourself, no matter where you are in your journey? Because many of us have these tools that we just don't leverage and use. Or we don't have confidence. Everything's here. We don't need to buy anything. We don't need to do anything special. We just need to look inward and then apply it. Tell us about the journey that you went on to acquire that confidence because in my observation as an outsider i mean i'm my wife is an anesthesiologist obviously but i'm i haven't gone through med school and residency but i view it a little bit like the army where they break you down and you come in as an individual and then you get turned into something as part of a greater effort that 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 there's a psycho if you go in as a rugged individualist as an ms1 you're going to come out something very different as a pgy4 and i think some physicians preserve that sense of I don't want to call it individualism, but like the, the entrepreneurial spirit a little bit and, and others who eventually want to be entrepreneurs have to like develop that or find it in a way that it hasn't existed in their own heart and mind before. So I'm curious, how did you experience that through your journey? Was it already there as an MS1 or did it have to grow during your time clinically? I think when I look back, I, I think I was able to take risk pretty early. And so I'm probably not your traditional physician mindset, but when, when you were talking about, you know, kind of getting beaten down and, and going down this route, I actually think what physicians think is being so specialized and, you know, highly trained at what they do, I feel that like they apply that to everything else. So they lose confidence in doing something in a, in a different field because they feel they need to be an expert in it. And when you realize that it's completely opposite, right? That's why you have high school, college dropouts, starting companies and, and doing what they do or whoever, it's like, how did they do that? They didn't even know about technology, but yet they just did it. It's just a lack of fear. And it's a lack of this expectation for yourself. 
So if you just take down expectations and, that, and that's what I talk a little bit about in the book is, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are just winging it. And in the field of medicine, you can't wing it. And there's people's lives on, on hand here. But when it comes to the entrepreneurial world, you can learn this stuff. Anyone can learn this stuff. And, you know, even this morning, I got a inbound message about, you know, how come I didn't do my MBA and, you know, how did I get into business? And, you know, in the end, if you want experience, I just put myself into experience. I learned from other people around me. I started doing, and then I started thinking a little bit more uh, versus overthinking and not doing. And, and, you know, it's, it's no one's fault. It's just everyone needs a little nudge to realize that they are a very well-accomplished, highly intelligent person who takes care of people's lives today. You can do anything. I could not agree more heartily. Anybody who's watching on the YouTube channel will see my head nodding up and down emphatically as, as you were sharing that. I think that medicine trains you to do the opposite. It's like the stakes are so high. You don't do anything unless you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Except for very limited circumstances or business. I have a lot of friends that are entrepreneurs. I am an entrepreneur and many other friends who are business owners of all different stripes. And they all have to, it's, it's you, you experiment <laughs> until you find the thing that works. Yeah. And, um, that's, it does require, uh, a mindset shift and an awareness that like, this isn't medicine operates in a certain way. And the rest of, you know, business is just operates in a totally different way. Yeah. And embracing that reality, I think is probably an an important first step to opening yourself up to say like, if I fail, then it's the Thomas Edison experience. I found the thing that didn't work and I'm going to keep on going until I find that yeah. one. Hopefully it's not number 2000 the way it was for him. But <laughs> I, yeah, could not agree more. So, you know, you mentioned the MBA. I wanted to ask you about this because I saw you post about it, I think on LinkedIn, maybe in the last day or so. Anybody who would come to you and say like, hey, I'm thinking about an MBA. There's, I think there's embedded in there the, the physician sort of experience informing the way I think the path forward is, is to get the piece of paper that tells me that I can go do a thing and then I'll go do the yeah. thing. So if somebody asked you about, you don't have an MBA, you're running a venture capital company and you seem to be a pretty successful business person, how would you sort of counsel them as they're thinking about that? Yeah, um, simply said, I'll say, what, what's the goal of it? And sometimes people say, well, I just wanna learn business. I wanna get into business. I wanna do something business. I wanna figure out maybe something business. So to me, those are very broad answers and there's nothing wrong with it. I just encourage people to really think if your goal is to learn about business, then you don't have to do an MBA and spend money and time on getting a degree. There's free courses, paid courses online. There's people you can talk to. There's mentorship opportunities. You can, you can learn a ton from other people and experiences. Some people will say, well, I want to get this position within my hospital or somewhere they require an MBA and that's important to me. That makes sense. Go for it. Yeah. But I will say a lot of times there's not necessarily this direct goal and there's a direct way that this degree helps them get that goal. And, and, you know, broadly speaking, that's how I feel about any degree, including college, you know, now, you know, that was the norm. Just let's go to college and let's figure it out. Well, guess what? College isn't cheap. And, I see plenty of people who are not closer to their truth or their pathway after college. So I am really rethinking a lot of things. I'm like this money and time that is used to help you mature. What about gaining direct experience? What about going straight for an employer? So on the business world, the entrepreneurial world and the educational world, uh, I'm trying to bring more businesses that can take more students that have certain skill sets that can be learned and start employment sooner. So number one, they're earning money. 
their earning experience, and then they're figuring out what their skill sets are as they as they go along. It's direct application. So that's that's where my mindset is. And they're staying out of debt. And the, they're staying the out of debt. The inverse opportunity cost of instead of paying one hundred and ninety thousand dollars to go to this university to get a piece of paper to hopefully then find a job, you uh, get experience and get money, and. <laughs> learn some of those lessons to then evaluate if that is good. I think more and more higher ed, man, mm. it's, uh, we're headed towards this really interesting sort of paradoxical place. And I'm yes. very curious. I'm glad Calvin's only two right now, my son, because I think yeah. by the time another 16 years have elapsed, hopefully we'll have a little more clarity about the best way to, you know, equip yourself yeah. for vocation in the future. World. I've really embraced uh, design thinking and, and experiential learning. And so we actually have a in-house company called Inventi. Uh, that consults with higher ed, um, but also have our own lab school. So uh, while we're digging into this and building this, I'm learning more. I'm like, wow, this is how school should be. So it's interesting. My perspective is changing very quickly, but I don't think I'm alone. Excellent. If people out here are listening and they want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm actually on all socials, but LinkedIn, I probably post daily and share about entrepreneurship, healthcare, venture capital, leadership, so they can uh, follow or reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I also have a website, uh, physicianunderdog.com, which is the name of the book, has the book on there. It has some resources to, to different books to read or listen to uh, just to expand their mindset and a few other things, uh, how to join beyondphysician.com as well as go to loudcapital.com vc etc so there's a lot there's a lot of resources on the website awesome well dr naveen goyal thank you very much for joining us on this episode of apm success thank you very much for having me if you liked what you heard this week head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management if you wanted to leave a review in itunes i'd also really appreciate it Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.